Welcome to another podcast from the Intent Discussions podcast series. I am Itzko Skatema. My guest today is Shahana Rasul. Shahana is, the, is a professor of um, social work at the University of Johannesburg. And we've actually been colleagues for quite a while now. And we've been uh, sort of working in parallel for some time. And Shahana's got a couple of, um, she's got some, some insights into the application of this whole intent idea, the intent thematic to her discipline. Um, so welcome, Shahana. Welcome to the, uh, our chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. And it's really nice to start thinking about how the thematic is useful for social work and maybe just more broadly for psychosocial responses. What is your take on the application or implication of the thematic to the discipline, your discipline? be useful to actually start with my journey uh, with Skatema and how I came to Skatema because uh, in fact the first application of this work has been in my own personal life to deal with my own personal uh, psychosocial responses to, to personal trauma, personal bereavement. Right. Um, and in fact that's actually how I came across this work and how right. I've started thinking about it beyond obviously myself after that. Right. Um, I think a big part of it is it's how it's influenced my life and for me, uh, the usefulness beyond um, my life for, for other people who may be going through similar kind of uh, psychosocial issues. So um, at the time I, I came to Skatema, I had just lost my family uh, in a car accident. So my parents and my sister. And after that, I got divorced. So it was, uh, you know, huge amounts of losses one mm. after the other. And so I was dealing with a lot of grief. I would say I was quite depressed at the time, uh, you know, struggling to cope, struggling to um, get on with life as I had been. You know, I mean, in fact, after my, um, the, my family passed away, I was kind of still going on business as usual, trying to get on with it and get on with life. But when the divorce came, it kind of was the last straw you know, mm. the last row on the camel's back. And at that point, I actually stopped uh, coping and my previous coping mechanisms weren't working for me at all. And it was around that time that I think I met you um, mm. and sort of started getting introduced to the thematic. Mm. Um, and I would like to think and actually to believe that a lot of the who I am right now and how I managed to get through that time is due to some of the ideas that come from the thematic mm. um and i mean of course there were support systems like friends and you know other things but this was a huge part of how it changed my framework and helped me to get out of the malaise i was in you know mm. Mm. so i think the beginning concept for me was just the huge focus on gratitude mm. uh and the remembrance of how the, we are so, um, that there's so much in our lives that is not due to our own account that we are blessed with. Mm. And that was one of the key concepts that I think really helped me that I think we take so much for granted, the fact that we can speak, the fact that we breathe, the fact that all of the air around us is not due to our own making, the mm. fact that um, all of, all of, our everyday functioning that we take so much for granted and assume is due to us is not necessarily so. 
Mm. And so those concepts were really fundamental in helping me realize that, yes, I have gone through all of this. And however, despite all of that, I have so much and I'm so blessed in many ways. And, and sort of that changed the focus right. from the inside and the, the internal dialogue, as you call it, which goes on, which kind of, I mean, at that point, I wasn't sure I even had internal dialogue because mm. sometimes when you're depressed, you're actually mindless. You're just so numb. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and, and I'm sure there was some internal dialogue at a subconscious level, mm. which was not very positive. Mm. And so that helped me move and shift from that sort of internal dialogue to um, looking beyond that. Hmm. Um, and then took me to those concepts that you spoke about in terms of um, uh, the window of perception. Uh, and I don't know if maybe you want to say a little bit about that hmm. uh, before I talk about how it assisted me. Or if there's anything you want to say in relation to what um, I just said. So, um, so the window of perception is this idea that anything that you perceive in the world is contained within this boundary of... Um, uh, at the limit of your peripheral vision, and we refer to that as the, the window of perception. And um, uh, most people think that the work that needs to be done is on the other side, you know, uh, on the other side of the window of perception. They don't realize how profoundly what happens on this side of the window of perception, in other words, in the subject, in the self, actually profoundly changes your experience of what's on the other side. Absolutely. And so, so it was the reframing of what the focus on the inside was. But also on stilling, so that sort of the meditation work that we did um, and sort of the other work was also about stilling the mind, you know, mm. of all the sort of negative uh, kind of messages that you give yourself on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, yeah. so, so even though to an extent the wheel of perception is about looking at your inside and interrogating the inside, <coughs> it is also about how what you, what you think about on the inside gets um, articulated in the rest of the world. That's right, that's so it's, right. It's the relationship between those two things and whether you continue to think in a negative way and how that impacts on how you behave in the world and how you respond to things mm. uh, and how you perceive certain things. So, mm. so how, in what ways, and I mean, it's really difficult to say, in what ways is the death of your family a blessing? Mm. So to start looking, you know, and I think we did that exercise in the personal excellence course around mm. how we change our... Um, What's the word you use? Biographies. Mm. So what are the biographies? What is the story we have about our lives? What is the story about the death and what it means? And how do you work with that? Mm. Uh, and, and you change the story and you, and you reconstruct that, uh, that narrative in ways that are empowering rather than disempowering and, and, and that, that takes you into deeper cycles of depression or, or sadness or anger or whatever the sort of negative emotion is and how do you reconstruct those biographies in ways that are empowering and help you mm. to continue. So how did that happen for you, Shahana? I mean, how did you manage to uh, take this experience of loss and bereavement, both of the marriage and of the, of the loss of your family and, and, and transcend it, make it something that was not a complete depressing disabler? It's so um, hard because I, mean, I was thinking about this when you asked me for the conversation mm. and I mean, it's so incremental, you know, and I mean, mm. we've been working with this for quite a long time. And so it was mm. different things over time that, that, that really assisted. But I do think that the issue of gratitude and being gra grateful and, and recognizing how much we have to be grateful about 
was very uh, useful for me. But I think also the issue of intent and, and thinking about the intent in everything that we do and I think, uh, framing the intent. So I think a lot of the time when we work, we don't think about what drives us. We don't think about the why. So I was actually thinking about this in a social work context. When we work with clients, we develop aims and goals for our client. Uh, and so the aim and goals of what you want to achieve the outcome, but mm. actually we don't often think about the why behind that. Mm. The why becomes quite important. So why am I doing this? So what is the bigger picture of change that you're trying to accomplish? Mm. Um, because we can get stuck into the technicalities and the day-to-day -day stuff and the why of what drives you is very important. I think for me personally, it's also led to a lot of sort of some of the accomplishments I've had post mm. uh, my divorce. I mean, getting through all of that and then still succeeding in my career, and I don't think it was because I was focused on my career. It was focused on <clears throat> what are the things that are important to me? Mm. Why am I doing the work I'm doing? Mm -hmm. uh, and that really galvanized me. So I've never focused on, okay, well, what do I need to do to get the next promotion? Right. It was never about that. It was about, okay, what are the things that I'm passionate about and what, is, what are the things that I want to impact on? Right. And, and, and focusing on how to impact on those things and, and has, you know, I mean, I think the only real thing that was about the promotion was the actual final writing up of the promotion application or whatever mm. the case might be. Mm. But the actual work was the work I was doing because of what I was passionate about and what drives me. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Amazing. Hmm. Well, I mean, the work's amazing. I think the thematic's amazing. It is, it's been really inspirational in driving my life force and my focus and getting me from a very negative state to a positive state. And, you know, there's something that you always say about how really we are not in control of much. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of what's happened has come and it's not by my own doing. Hmm. So I'll give you an example of a recent one. Hmm. Uh, we are trying to set up a, a psychosocial response uh, team to the COVID-19. And so we set up a, a WhatsApp counseling line with yeah. counselors. <clears throat> and we started off with about 40 counselors and we got to a point of, was, of that that was not being enough. And um, I mean, and we were still working and doing whatever we wanted to do. And then, and then I wrote this article, which was published in the Mail and Guardian on the need for psychosocial intervention. Yeah, that's the one I saw, the one you sent me. Yes, that's the one. And the next thing, then a day or two later, somebody wrote to me. I mean, I hadn't in that article anywhere stated that I was doing this work on the WhatsApp group. Mm. Somebody contacted me who said they have an entire uh, database of social workers who are available to volunteer for this intervention or any, in any way I, 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 I deem possible. So that was not even by my own intention or my own... Yes, yes, yes. It's just amazing how when the intention is clear that a lot of everything falls into place. Mm. If the intention is, is, I'm not sure what the right word is, um, yeah. uh, appropriate, maybe appropriate. Yeah. If the yeah, intention is yeah. appropriate, then um, the outcomes just flow. Yeah. Life's kind and of stretched to help you succeed. Exactly. That's exactly what you say, isn't it? Mm. That's exactly the way you, you, you put it forward in your training. Yeah. Yeah. Say it, I, I like the way you say that. Just say it again. So when you're when when you when the contribution that you're trying to make is clear and you're doing it for that intent, then life orchestrates to help you succeed. Exactly. That's exactly that. Yeah. Huh. So one of the other concepts that I thought was quite useful. Um, so a lot of social work is about giving. 
Mm. Um, and, 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 and really people come in because they have the intention to give when they start to do social work. Um, and one of the things we, we don't talk about, about so much in social work that's actually quite important is the notion of, uh, of courage, that there's two aspects of giving. Yeah. Uh, and the other aspect is the, is the courage aspect. Mm. And that actually on a daily basis, social workers have to make very courageous decisions. Mm. So giving is not always about being nice. And that's one of the things that, you know, I learned through this. Mm. And I saw this in social work, but we didn't really have the, um, the words for it in the same way. Mm. And I really like the articulation of that in the thematic, which mm. says that, you know, uh, giving is not just only about being nice. It's about mm. being courageous. Mm. Uh, a lot of the time, social workers have to make very courageous decisions in the kind of work we do, you know, removing children, working with mm. uh, people who may have been criminals, etc. Mm -hmm. and, and that those concepts are also very useful, uh, I thought, in, ter in terms of uh, working in, in a form of social work concept. Yeah. I mean, is there also? I mean, I should imagine this thing of of wanting to manage outcomes and being exhausted by the by the work must be a big issue in in social work as a discipline. I mean, um, do people get drained by the job? Absolutely, I think burnout is one is a big issue, and I think there's not enough self care, no. um, and I. So that's sort of why some of the meditation and things that we, we do here and some of the reflections are quite useful. Mm -hmm. But was there something specific you wanted to explore about that? Well, so I just, so, <clears throat> so, you know, we have this idea that when you do something for conditional motive, when you're doing something to achieve an outcome, the thing that you're doing consumes you in doing it. Mm. So if I'm walking to the top of the mountain in order to, if I'm walking in order to get to the top of the mountain, I get exhausted by the walk. It doesn't nourish me, it depletes me. But if I'm using the top of the mountain as an, as an opportunity to, to walk well, in other words, I shift my attention from outcome into focus, then the strange thing happens is that not only does the outcome come more easily, um, the, the, the activity itself is actually nourishing, it's not depleting. And, it's, and, and you, so you see this phenomenon very often, so I'm just speculating now, I mean, you see this phenomenon very often in people who are in benign professions. So doctors, um, uh, vets, I've, I've seen this very dramatically with, with veterinary surgeons. They get so invested, a vet gets invested. In fact, unfortunately, a vet has got two problems. I mean, he's not just got the sick animal, but his patient is actually also the owner of the animal and the distress of the owner of the animal. And obviously the vet wants to make things better. I mean, that's why they're in this profession. They want a, so they don't want this sick animal and unhappy person. They want a healthy animal and a happy person. And um, uh, so they get very invested in the outcome. And, and evidently vets uh, have an unbelievable rate of burnout. I mean, they kind of, at, um, they've, in, by them, very few vets last into their 50s. They kind of, they bail in their 40s, evidently, as, as this is one of the, I was working with a, a veterinary association that kind of where this was, uh, the, the, I was told this, this, this statistic. And so I was wondering if this is true for social workers as well, that you just eventually just get depleted by what you're doing because you're so invested in the outcome. That's really interesting. And I think when I think about that, I think about um, environments where social work becomes very bureaucratized. So it is very much focused on 
the content rather than what goes into it. And mm-hmm. that when, when social workers have the opportunity to be in the present, in the moment, and be present with the person, the community, the group, whoever they're working with, uh, in that engagement, it can be nourishing. Mm-hmm. But when the focus is, as you say, maybe, okay, well, we need to, uh, you know, uh, place 500 foster care children, that becomes outcome driven as opposed to process driven. That's right. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the distinction that we, we talk about in social work yeah. outcome as opposed to process driven. Okay. And I think that, that kind those kind of conditions disable people. And I think that there's a lot of that um, in bureaucratic social systems where social workers are disabled from doing their work effectively because of these kind of bureaucracies and because of outcome measures. That so the focus becomes on whether you have a processed 500 foster care children or as opposed to whether you've done really good work in placing children in good homes and supported mm-hmm. those children through the process you know etc so so and those and this kind of increases i think burnout and and people's frustration because that's not why they go into the profession it's mm-hmm. you know yes of course we there are 500 children that need placements we get yeah. that but how do we create an enabling environment to do that better rather than focusing on, okay, the end product? Mm. Mm. That's absolutely true. Mm. And you're suggesting that the way in which the discipline gets kind of administered uh, puts a, a, it kind of queers the pitch to, to outcomes rather than, than process. It really depends on where and how it gets administered, but often in, in sort of government structures or bureaucratic structures, right. Uh, you know, where there's sort of high levels of need to show outcomes, mm. uh, that that sort of quality and sort of process sometimes gets lost. And I think this leads to high levels of burnout, but also a, a high levels of disengagement mm. from yeah. from social workers. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. So, I mean, what can, what can you do as, um, as a, a senior academic in this field uh, to uh, sort of prepare people or, or kind of mitigate against this tendency in bureaucracies that uh, deal with, with social work as a discipline? I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face because the kind of training that we give social workers uh, are to do the work. Mm. not to manage bureaucracies. Uh, and so there's a lot of need to, to work with bureaucracies to change how they operate, which is, as you know, quite difficult because they're usually quite established in the ways they, they mm. operate. Yeah. But I think exposure to this kind of work and this kind of leadership training is very useful. I mean, because a big mm. part of the work that you do is leadership training. Uh, and I think it'd be so amazing if some of our management could get exposure to this kind of training because it, it changes the emphasis and focus of, of how we operate and what we look for. Mm. I mean, one of the key things you, you talk about in the training is, is, is about not being outcome focused. And you talk about this not just to, to people who do this kind of work, but you're talking about this to people who are in banking and mining and who are yeah. money driven. You know, right. so, yeah. And it's been useful for them. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, sometimes the play, environments where outcomes are most critical uh, are actually environments where this this insight is actually most useful. I mean, paradoxically, you know, kind of, if you really want to make money, then uh, focus on, on the, pro- like, if you really want to up your sales, then give attention to your sales process. You know, it's kind of, you, you, you can't expect to get the score to go up if you don't play the game better. 
Um, that uh, just doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, present is quite important. Yeah. In the moment. But it does strike me that the people who, the, I mean, the young people who are coming through your hands now and being kind of groomed in the discipline are people who, in the fullness of time, will be administrators. They'll be running social work uh, departments and functions. And, uh, you know, so, um, I mean, so, so an example that, that really very often comes to mind for me is the effect of of critical theory in the 60s and the 70s on basically service provision by government institutions and in fact um, how institutions, academic institutions get run today. So, um, I mean, it's no longer the case that much, but uh, when, you, you know, when, when I was a student, I mean, we were weaned on Marx and Freud uh, and that whole worldview. You know, I mean, the, the Frankfurt School was like the, you know, this was the way to think about the human condition. And the, the, you could still see, still today, when I meet people of my generation who are now operating at senior sort of, um, uh, senior levels, particularly in kind of state organizations, the person doesn't have to open their mouth for more than a sentence. And you can you can see where they're coming from. You can see how they're looking at the issue. So... So I think, um, you know, universities are, the, are actually places where the next generation of, of, of uh, leadership of our establishment are being groomed. And so the kind of content that you expose young people to now will affect how they're going to apply, how they're going to see their, 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 um, you know, their discipline or their, their profession in the future. So, so for instance, I mean, if you de if you deliberately uh, built, uh, you know, I mean, you must have a course around uh, and, and sort of governance or administration program mm. for, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you built into that some insight as to how to sh how to run the function in such a way that you're looking at process rather than outcome, I mean. Um, I suspect well, look, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of the social work curriculum in any case is mm. around focus on process because what we're teaching students all the time is how to work with process uh, in many ways. But I think that that doesn't, so we, you know, we, we work with them in terms of like when they're working with clients, when they're working in group context, when they're working communities, the well, process of how do you is quite important. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I guess it doesn't always get translated into how does that work in administration? How how do you focus on process when you are in leadership? Maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't translate in that way. And so that's maybe something to think about how to incorporate process in terms of some of the administration issues. Uh, and then I guess also sometimes we, no matter what you're teaching, students are going into um, bureaucracies that have been established, God knows when, and with certain principles and with certain historical contexts, and they don't change very, very much. Yeah. And I guess the issue is how do we how do we work with those bureaucracies to change no, you know, people who run them? So, that, so the, the systems almost drive the people rather than the other way around, yeah. right? We're often told, no, we can't do this. This is the way we've always done it. Uh, so opportunities for change and shifting is very difficult in bureaucratic contexts, uh, where, where the people are, are run by processes and so people, I mean, so the people are run by the way things have been done rather than people driving 
they're like changing a, if, if things like, no longer are useful. There's like an institutional memory that's got a, a momentum of, of its own. Absolutely. I mean, I think some, some of the archaic systems that we work with in government structures, and you can see this now with COVID-19, right? Mm. That the institutional is struggling to respond to the kind of current needs and the need for quick movement. I mean, mm. in terms of the kind of social relief that's just not happened as quickly as it should have had, have happened. Like for me, government knew way before we did that lockdown was going to happen. They should have had food parcels lined up or whatever kind of interventions for social relief. No. It, I mean, and by the time the lockdown was announced, they know or should know who are the poor people who have less access to resources. Yeah. So, for example, people who are on the childcare grant or, or pensioners, you know who they are. Mm. With, the, with the last um, supply of the, of the grant, there should have been a food parcel or whatever additional resources that should have been already lined up. Yeah. But if your systems are not adapting to the times and are still so stuck in archaic ways of working and we're not able to, to respond to where we are right now, then we are in the kind of situation that we've, 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 we're seeing happen now. When we have a crisis, when we have a pandemic, we can't respond effectively or efficiently. So, I mean, Shahana, what's your prognosis? Do you think we will manage to make the world a better place? Well, I hope it's one step at a time. Oh. Uh, I think that uh, if we don't have that hope and if we don't have that intent, mm. then nothing will change. I mean, I think in many ways, and I think this you always re remind us that the world is uh, not as bad as we sometimes think it is. Mm. However, unfortunately, I think there's sort of inequalities that really do need to, to, to be addressed. And I don't think that we can give up on that. Yeah. No, I, think, I mean, I think that is true. You know, I mean, just in terms of my own professional experience, you know that when I first, in the 80s, you didn't hear the word leadership outside of a military context. People in charge of people at work were called managers. That is how they were referred to. And leadership as a word only started to kind of enter, at least in this country, enter the kind of the sort of the, the, the managerial discourse in, in the early 90s. And I mean, um, uh, now it's become common cause. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that there, there, is, there, there is a shift. I mean, there is a shift to attempting to make um, organizations, bureaucracies more inclusive, more participatory, um, uh, and more sort of... Um, more relying on the on the voluntary contribution of the member than than you know compelling them. I mean that's uh, so 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 that's my hope for the future. I mean I um, I'm I'm hoping that we can have an effect like that over time because I have seen an effect like that is just as a little bit boiled frog. It's taken a long time and the incremental the increments are, are very small. Maybe the increments are too small and we could have them faster. I think that very much depends on contribution, isn't it? And and kind of situations like this will push us to mm. think about things differently and to start looking at systems and how they work because so much of, of what we have right now doesn't work uh, effectively or works for some and not for others. Yeah. So I think that we, we, we're going to be pushed a faster right now. I mean, so if you think, okay, all of a sudden we have a pandemic so we can find 
places for people to know. Why couldn't we do this prior to this? Yeah, no, that's true. Because that land was available beforehand. So yeah. why has this land not been used before? So, yeah. you know, we have yeah. enough food in the world for everyone. Why is it that we still have hunger? Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, so why does it take a pandemic for us to get to a place of saying that let's address this quickly and, and more effectively? So, so you seem to think that um, one of the results of this experience that we're having is that we'll come out with almost like a somewhat kinder social contract between the wealthy and the poor and the powerful and the, uh, uh, and, and the meek, if you like. Do you see that as a possibility? Well, I, I hope that sort of, the, sort of the, the, there isn't a need for that contract and we can have greater equality rather than inequality and that some of those issues of inequality can be addressed. Mm. Although the argument has been made that the pandemic may actually increase inequalities. But I hope that in some ways, if we start thinking of contribution and we start thinking in, in ways that are different, uh, that we may be able to, to change the current social order. Um, we don't have the have and have nots. Hmm. Shana, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic conversation, very helpful. Thank you for sharing your thank expertise you. with us. Hmm. Thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity. Lovely to see you. All the best.